Hi, and welcome to Time Travelling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Paddy. And I'm Trisha. Today we're journeying into the universe to explore the strange wonders of the web planet. We'll be talking about the characters and giving our thoughts on the story as a whole. We would also love to hear your thoughts on this story, and so to join in the discussion, you can check us out at Time Team, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P, on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Or you can email us at timetravellingteam at teamproductions.com. And now on to the story recap. Episode 1, The Web Planet. The TARDIS is pulled down to the surface of a desolated planet, which is more akin to the surface of a moon than anything else. The Doctor cannot determine what is causing the gravitational pull, but the others tell him that they are confident he will figure it out. As he is investigating, Vicky complains of hearing an uncomfortably high-pitched sound, but the others can't seem to hear it. The doctor says that she might be picking up an ultrasonic sound, the type that only young people or animals can detect. Barbara urges the doctor to leave, but he cannot take off due to the gravitational force. Outside on the planet's surface, several large ant-like creatures communicate with each other through a series of high-frequency beeps. They are joined by a small larva-like creature, and together they assault the TARDIS. Inside, the travellers are rocked by the assault, and Vicky is thrown to the ground. Barbara looks at the external view screen and says that she saw some sort of flash, but the doctor says that it was most likely a refraction of some cosmic flare, and that's what is probably affecting the TARDIS, which has now been completely drained of power. Barbara takes Vicky to the infirmary, and the doctor and Ian decide to explore outside. They put on a pair of atmospheric density jackets due to the thinness of the air outside. Ian points out that they are stuck inside due to the doors being inoperative. The Doctor uses his ring, which seems to be some sort of static generator, to power the doors enough to open and shut behind them. Barbara brings Vicky some aspirin, but Vicky considers taking it as akin to using leeches. She and Barbara discuss the advances and losses made in education in the centuries between their two respective time periods, with Vicky saying that the education has been reduced to machine instruction of one hour a week on advanced subjects such as physics and medicine. Barbara asks her to take the medicine as a favour to her, and Vicky agrees. She notices a golden bracelet on Barbara's arm and Barbara tells her that it was a gift from Nero and promises to tell her the whole story after she goes for a rest. Vicky is sceptical but agrees to take a rest saying she will talk to Ian about it when she wakes up. She seems confused when Barbara says that they went outside to explore. On the planet's surface the doctor is examining a rock cluster and asks for something sharp to take a sample. Ian goes to give him a gold-plated pen but it disappears right out of his hand. When he tries to explain to the Doctor that it is not a trick, the echoes of their own voices seem to take on a life of their own, lasting far longer than normal and rearranging themselves. Ian confides to the Doctor that he feels that they are being watched. The Doctor says that they should go and explore, as whatever took Ian's pen is most likely also affecting the TARDIS. Barbara is inside the console room, tidying the supply box and observing the Doctor and Ian on the external view screen. Mysteriously, the arm with the bracelet on it starts to be slowly dragged towards the door. She manages to pull free of the strange force and goes back into the infirmary. Vicky wakes up and witnesses the strange occurrence happen, but she thinks Barbara is joking. Barbara tries to explain what's happening, but leaves in frustration. The Doctor and Ian come across an ancient stone pyramid. Ian spots a pool of water nearby, but the Doctor stops him before he can touch it. He takes Ian's tie and lowers it into the water, revealing it to actually be acid. As they are leaving, Ian spots a light in the pool, but they can't locate the source. As they are discussing this, one of the ant creatures that has been observing them scuttles away, communicating with its brethren. The Doctor and Ian hear the strange beeping language and decide to leave. Inside the TARDIS, Barbara can hear the beeping of the creatures and sees the door open and the console activate. She tries to get to the console but she is dragged through the doors by the strange force pulling on her bracelet, putting her into a hypnotic state. The force continues to drag her back towards the pyramid, placing her right in the path of an acid pool. 
Vicky wakes up and goes into the console room and when she tr- sees the doors open, starts to call out for Barbara. The Doctor and Ian hear her calls and rush back towards her. However, Ian gets trapped in a net made of webs, but he tells the Doctor to go on without him. The TARDIS doors close and the ship begins to take off, with Vicky desperately trying to make it stop. The Doctor arrives back at the landing site and is shocked to see the TARDIS is gone. Episode 2. The Zarbi One of the ant creatures seems to be controlling Barbara as she makes her way towards the acid pool. He makes her change her direction at the last second and she continues on her forced journey. As she moves forward, a large anthropomorphic moth-like creature appears behind her. It intercepts her and instead leads her to a cave inhabited by more of its species, and they take the bracelet off and dispose of it in an acid pool, thereby releasing Barbara from her hypnotic state. She tries to leave, but they block her escape. The Doctor rushes back to Ian and finds him motionless on the ground, with no sign of the web net. The Doctor rouses him and notices his face is blistered, and Ian tells him that it feels like he has fallen into a bed of nettles. The Doctor tells him about the TARDIS, and Ian notices that he seems to be struggling to breathe. The Doctor tells him that the density jackets are only effective for about an hour and the thinner air is tiring them out. Ian suggests removing the jackets so they can gradually get used to the new atmosphere. The Doctor notices some strange marks on the ground and Ian says they look like drag marks and are just about big enough to belong to the TARDIS. The TARDIS is in fact being dragged across the planet's surface by the same force and Vicky is helpless to do anything about it. She looks up in the external view screen and sees one of the ant creatures staring directly back into the camera. She can only watch in mounting dread as it is pulled into the ant creature's hive. The TARDIS doors open and Vicky's curiosity gets the better of her and she goes on to explore the hive. She barely goes a few metres from the TARDIS before she's set upon by several of the ant creatures. The Doctor and Ian follow the marks until they stop and they set about investigating the surrounding area for any other clues as to the TARDIS's location. The Doctor notices the claw prints of the ant creatures and Ian draws his attention to the chrysalis of an insect creature that he just accidentally stepped in. The Doctor realises it belongs to a species called the Monoptera, several of whom are the creatures that now hold Barbara. With all the new evidence, the Doctor suggests that they are on the planet Vortis, but he is confused as Vortis does not have a moon, yet they can clearly see several above them. As they progress further, they see the hive in the distance, but suddenly are surrounded by several of the ant and larva creatures, and Ian tries to resist capture, but the Doctor tells him to obey their new captors, who start to lead them away. Barbara recounts her story to the Monoptera, who seem to be split as to how to deal with her, with some of them opting to kill her. Barbara learns that the ant creatures are actually called Zarbi, and they outnumber the Monoptera. They discuss amongst themselves that she is a liability, as she could break under Zarbi interrogation. Barbara again makes a break for it, this time managing to escape successfully. However, she doesn't get too far before she is recaptured by the Zarbi. Back at the hive, one of the Zarbi tries to enter the TARDIS, but it recoils in pain when it tries crossing the doorway. The Doctor and Ian arrive, with the former going to the TARDIS and the latter going to comfort the frightened Vicky. The Doctor demands to know what the creatures want, but they seem to be only capable of communicating in their own beeping language. In the cave, the Monoptera, who are actually a scouting party for a larger invasion force, send a message to their fleet in an effort to inform them of something called the Animus. Unfortunately, the signal is distorted due to the minerals in the cave walls and the leader of the group suggests trying again from outside. However, it is too late as a group of Zarbi, led by a re-enslaved Barbara, assault the cave. One of the Monoptera is killed as he holds off the Zarbi, allowing the leader, named Vestron, to escape. Meanwhile, another Monoptera named Hrostar frees Barbara from the Zarbi's control, saying that the Zarbi can control anyone through the use of golden rings. He tells her that all the prisoners are taken to a place called the Cradle of Needles, which he says is a terrible place. Before they can escape, he is set upon by a group of Zarbi, and Barbara watches in horror as they begin to rip out his wings. 
Back at the hive, the doctor attempts to use sign language to communicate with the Zarbi, but it is no use. Instead, an alarm goes off, and he is ushered underneath a tube that lowers itself from the ceiling. The tube hangs over his head, and a voice asks him, Why do you come now? Episode 3. Escape to Danger The voice accuses the doctor and his friends of being a Monoptera spies, and refuses to listen to his claims that they know nothing about the Monoptera. The voice commands some wall-mounted weaponry to destroy the TARDIS, but the blaster deflected back at the Zarbi. The doctor asks Vicky what she did while the TARDIS was being brought to the hive and she tells him that she was thrown against the console and started pressing random buttons to try and get the ship to stop. The doctor announces that she has realigned the fluid link and the ship is now operational. He then attempts to barter for their freedom and learn of Barbara's whereabouts. The voice offers that if the doctor can help them detect and defeat the Monoptera invasion force it will then release him and the others and let them on their way to collect Barbara from the Cradle of Needles. The doctor says he will need help taking the equipment out of the TARDIS and requests his companions to be released. The Zarbi release Ian, but keep Vicky as a hostage to prevent them from trying to escape. The doctor and Ian recuperate in the normalised atmosphere of the TARDIS. The doctor gives Ian something for his face to help with the burns. They discuss their captors and realise that due to their size, if their strength is comparative to their counterparts on Earth, an army of them would be unstoppable. The doctor instructs Ian to try and locate Barbara with the information he received from the voice. They take a piece of equipment, which the Doctor calls an astral map, out of the TARDIS, but it doesn't work due to the power disabling the TARDIS also affecting it. The Doctor demands to be put through to the voice and requests that to have the disabling field lowered to allow the astral map to work, to which the voice agrees. It seems that the Zarbi are also attuned to this energy and go into a suggested sleep, thereby allowing Ian to escape and rescue Barbara. After he is gone, the Doctor uses the astral map to pick up radio signals from the approaching Monoptera invasion force and locate its position. As Ian makes his way through the tunnels of the Hive, he encounters one of the Zarbi and defeats it. An alarm goes off throughout the Hive and squads of Zarbi and the smaller larva creatures attempt to track Ian down. He manages to escape when one of the larva creatures uses a blaster cannon to destroy a section of the Hive he was hiding in. As he exits the Hive, the surviving Monoptera leader, Vestran, swings down and rescues him from his pursuers. The voice says that the Doctor has lied and will therefore be killed. However, the Doctor says that he has vital information about the invasion force, and if he dies, then so does the information. The voice releases him, and he tells Vicky to retrieve a box from the TARDIS. Unfortunately, she brings up the wrong box, but Vicky notices something unusual when she sees the Zarbi retreat from it in fear of its contents. Vicky opens the box to reveal a spider in it. Vestron and Ian discuss their respective missions, with Vestron revealing that it is not an invasion force, but a reclaimment force. She says Vortus belonged to them centuries ago, but they are coming back to take it back from the Zarbi and their masters. She tells Ian that, that the Zarbi used to be quite docile, but have grown aggressive under the rule of the Animus. The Monoptera left for one of the surrounding moons, but many of them died due to their need for the specific atmosphere of Vortus. Ian asks for help in getting to the Creator of Needles, saying that she may also be able to get some of the Monoptera out, so as they cannot leave themselves due to being de-winged upon capture. They make a pit stop on the way to the crater, but are almost immediately set upon by the Zarbi. They escape into a cave, but the ground gives way beneath Vestron, who pulls Ian down with her, causing the cave to collapse and trap them inside. Episode 4 Crater of Needles Ian and Vestron dust themselves off from their fall, but they are suddenly set upon by a group of unknown creatures. At the Crater of Needles, Barbara is feeling the debilitating effects of the atmosphere, and Horostar advises her to rest while he will carry on their work. Barbara asks Horostar, why they are forced to feed the local vegetation into the acid pools within the crater. He tells her that the broken down vegetable matter is carried through the underground streams back to the Zarbi base, 
which is called the carcinome. The matter is used as building materials for the base, with the aim of expanding it to cover the entire surface of Vortus. He also reveals the centre of it is home to the Animus, the power that is controlling the Zarbi. He tells her that he and his group were actually part of a much larger infiltration force that aimed to break the Animus' control of the Zarbi, but it was a disaster as they were decimated by the enslaved creatures. With this information, Barbara asks if the invasion fleet has any chance of victory, and he informs her that the Monopteran scientists have been working on a new weapon called the Isoptope, which should give them the advantage. In the carcinome, Vicky asks the doctor when they should use the spider, and he tells her that they should wait until Ian returns with Barbara and then use it to escape. Azarbi and one of the larva creatures arrives and restrain Vicky with a control harness, whilst the doctor is summoned to speak with the Animus. It accuses him of stalling and threatens to kill Vicky. He tells the Animus of the approaching Monopteran fleet, but says he doesn't know any more than that. He requests to be given solitude to discover more information and also demands that Vicky be released. The moment she is released, an alarm goes off and the Zarvi and larva creatures rush about frantically, as if assuming battle stations. The Doctor instructs Vicky to go back to the TARDIS during the confusion to retrieve the spider and his walking stick. The same event is happening at the Crater of Needles, as all of the workers are herded back into their pens. Back in the cave, Ian and Vestrin try to explain to their captors, who look like anthropomorphic woodlice, about how they arrived there but they still bind them using liquid adhesives. They appear to be a primitive society speaking in a broken tongue. The leader of the group, whose name is Hetra, calls his people the Optera, and says that only death comes from above them. He says he must go and consult with something called the Chasm of Lights, and its judgement will decide their fate. In the holding pens, several of the prisoners ask Karostar if the alarm is the result of the invasion fleet. He asks Barbara if the Doctor has aided the Animus, but she denies it, saying that the alert is probably a general one across the planet. Rostar reveals that the invasion fleet was essentially a forlorn hope with the aim of gaining victory through sheer force of numbers against the superior weaponry of the Zarbi. One of the older prisoners insists that they need to alert the fleet, but Rostar says that their communication device was destroyed during the cave raid. Barbara suggests climbing to the top of the plateau to try and signal them somehow. Rostar is uncertain as there is a larva creature, which are known as larvae guns due to the electrical blast that they can discharge from their proboscis outside guarding them. Another of the Monopteran prisoners reveals that the majority of the security force in the crater has left, leaving only a skeleton crew to guard the prisoners. The old Monopteran says that he can take care of the larvae gun to begin their escape. They manage to break out of their cell and dispose of the Zarbi guard and the larvae gun and make their way back to the plateau. In the carcinome, Vicky uses the spider to scare off one of the Zarbi guards, making him drop the control harness which the doctor takes with his walking stick. He notices that it is composed entirely of gold and says that there must be some way to overcome the power controlling it. It appears that the power source of the TARDIS is a natural counter to it. They test their theory using the astral map from the TARDIS, which results in a small explosion. The Animus summons the Doctor and asks to know what is causing the new delay. It reveals that it knows the Doctor has been stalling, as it has been able to intercept communications from the Monopteran fleet. It says it will deal with the Doctor and Vicky once the invasion fleet has been dealt with. Underground, Hetero returns from the Chasm of Lights and says that Ian and Vestrin are to be killed due to their status as surface dwellers. Vestrin says that the invasion fleet has come to liberate the planet and therefore the Optera will be free to return to the surface. She and Ian reveal to the Optera that they are actually descendants of the Monopteran survivors that fled underground when the Animus took over. Due to the long span of time spent underground, the successive generations lost their wings and their bodies evolved to adapt to their underground home and the older Monoptera passed into legends to be worshipped as gods. Vestrin and Ian beg for their help in the coming fight. Barbara's group reaches the top of the plateau 
but they see the Zarbi forces are making their way towards them, and Horostar again accuses the Doctor of betraying them. The spearhead of the invasion fleet begins to arrive, and Horostar and Barber warn the leader to abort the landing as the Zarbi are lying in wait. However, it is too late as the spearhead lands and engages the Zarbi and larvae gun forces. The fight is a slaughter, and the leader calls for a retreat. The survivors scatter, with the leader and the female prisoner, Helnea, escaping in one direction, and Barbara Horostar and the other prisoner going in another as they are chased by the Zarbi. Episode 5 Invasion Barbara and the others manage to escape by entering a secret doorway built into a plateau that closes behind them. In the carcinome, Vicky reveals that she has been pretending to be hypnotised and that the collar has been rendered useless thanks to the doctor's use of the astral map. She then removes his harness and together they come up with a plan to take control of the Zarbi. They manage to slip the harness on the Zarbi guarding them and the doctor is able to control it with the use of his ring. Together, all three of them make their way through the tunnels. They reach the outside and the doctor suggests that they follow the tracks of the Zarbi force that went to engage the invasion fleet. They head off taking their Zarbi prisoner with them, which Vicky has now affectionately called Zombo. Barbara and her companions find themselves in a huge chamber decorated with murals and cave drawings. The older Monoptera, named Propilius, calls it the Temple of Light, one of the many secret sanctuaries built under the surface of Vortus. Helnea and the leader of the Spearhead, who calls himself Helio, join them and all the Monopterums lament that their plan has failed and that the invasion fleet will most likely meet the same fate. Propilius, who has learned to think more strategically due to his imprisonment, suggests that they must learn how to be more warlike and after showing them her work during the breakout, he requests that Barbara help them. Barbara asks what the plan was once the Monoptoran forces had overcome the Zarbi. Helio presents the Isoptope, which is in fact a living cell destructor and explains that they were to deliver it to the heart of the carcinome to destroy the Animus. However, he insists that they are too few to try and insult the carcinome, but Horostar insists that they should at least try instead of waiting around to die. The Optera have released Vestron and Ian and have agreed to help them by leading them through the underground tunnels of the Animus. The going is tough, as the Optera need to smash through the stalagmite formations and the rock walls to allow more light and fresher air into the tunnels. As they attempt to break through a wall, it unleashes a flood of acid, and a female Optera named Nimini sacrifices herself to plug the leak with her body and save the others. They break through another section of the tunnel and press on, with Ian offering a silent thanks to the fallen Opteran. They eventually arrive underneath the carcinome. Barbara and Hilio argue about the best place to attack. Hilio suggests flying above the carcinome and cutting his way into the centre from above, but Propilius says that it would be pointless as it wouldn't make any headway before the carcinome started to heal itself. Barbara suggests staging a diversionary attack to allow one of them to sneak into the tunnels and target the Animus. Propilius and Helio argue over who should be the one to go, but they stop when Hinea says someone is coming. The Doctor, Vicky and Zombo enter and joyfully reunite with Barbara, but the Doctor asks where Ian is. They say they do not know, but fill the Doctor in into their plan, and Propilius gives him the origin of the Animus. He says it crash-landed on the planet centuries ago, and it took root, drawing on the power of the magnetic pulse to sustain itself and increase its power. This draw upon the planet's magnetic forces is also what pulled the moons closer to it, and is also what has affected the TARDIS. The Doctor offers to take the isoptope back to the carcinome with him, and use it on the Animus once the others begin their diversionary attack. Propilius requests that Zombo be given to them to use in the attack, and after being coaxed by Barbara, the Doctor reluctantly gives him the ring to continue using the controlled Zombo. Upon returning to the carcinome, the Doctor and Vicky are accosted by several Zarbi guards and are imprisoned in some sort of restrictive webbing. Episode 6, The Centre The Animus says that it has had enough of the Doctor's lies and says he will be brought to the centre so that his brain can be added to its own consciousness. 
As they are being ushered down the tunnels by the Zarbi, the doctor asks Vicky for the isotope, but she says that she doesn't have it as she hid it in the astral map before they were captured. Underground, Ian and his group have started to dig their way through the thick crust beneath the centre of the carcinome. As they do so, fresh water seeps out, and Vestron says that this is a good sign for the future, as it means that the Optera can come back to the surface and rejoin with their Monoptera kin. The Optera seem reluctant, as they have only known death on the surface, but Hetra agrees to go with Ian and Vestron to see if it is safe on the surface for his people. Outside, Barbara and the others use Zombo to help create confusion amongst the Zarbi guards, which forces them to call reinforcements out of the carcinome. Rostar attempts to use the harness to take control of the larvae gun when it comes out of the tunnel, but is killed in the struggle. The Zarbi and the newly released Zombo flee back into the tunnels, and Barbara's group presses on after them. Helio attempts to use the harness on a Zarbi, but loses it in the scuffle. Thankfully, Propilius recovers it and subdues their opponent, but he then notices that they have wandered into a Zarbi nest. In the centre of the carcinome, the Doctor and Vicky are brought in front of the Animus, which is a pulsating tentacle life form. It overpowers their wills and draws it closer towards them so it can absorb them and their intelligence to its own. However, before it can fully absorb them, an alarm goes off distracting it. The alarms are a result of Barbara's group being detected, but they manage to destroy the wall-mounted weaponry. They then notice that the astral map and under Propilius' instruction attune it so that it can signal to the invasion fleet. Barbara notices that the machine isn't working and when she tries to fix it, she discovers the isotope that Vicky had hid there. Then they make their way towards the animus. Once they reach it, they are also subdued by its power and Barbara attempts to use the isotope fail. However, Ian emerges from the ground near the animus and distracts it long enough for Barbara to make a desperate lunge to insert the isotope into the centre of the animus. It dies within seconds and its control of the Zarbi dies with it, returning them and the larvae guns to their previous docile existence. The environmental effects of its death are also just as instantaneous, as the acid levels in the waterways drop, allowing fresh water to begin flowing again. Vestron brings the Optera to the surface and promises Hetra that within a few generations his people will be able to fly again. The travellers say their goodbyes and head back to the TARDIS, with Ian still holding the Doctor responsible for the loss of his school tie. The Monoptera prepare to return to their old lives, saying that they will never forget the travellers as they await for the arrival of the fleet. End of the story. So that's it for the story recap, and we're now going to go over to Trisha for some trivia notes. Thanks, buddy. So, the web planet. The writer for this story was Bill Strutton. This is Bill's only on-screen Doctor Who writing credit. However, he did write a story for the third Doctor that was never produced. It was later adapted by Big Finish, and it's included in their Lost Stories range. His other TV writing credits include The Avengers, The Saint, Strange Report, and Ivanhoe. Bill adapted the web planet for the Target novelisation, which was released under the title Doctor Who and the Zarbi. Bill Stratton died on the 23rd of November 2003, the day of Doctor Who's 40th anniversary. Oh. Yeah. I read that and I was like, that sucks. The director for the story is Richard Martin. This is not the first story Richard has worked on. We've discussed him previously in The Daleks, where he directed episodes 3, 6 and 7. The Edge of Destruction, where he directed episode 1. And The Dalek Invasion of Earth, which he directed the entire thing. We'll see his work once more in a couple of weeks when we look at The Chase. So he seems to be very Dalek-centric. <laughs> he is a bit Dalek-centric. Uh, uh, you know, we'll give him that. Kind of reminds me of like Orla- Orlando Bloom's early filmography. I can only do movies where I use a bow. That's it. 
I like to think that Richard is more, um, how would I put it? He's given interesting stories. Yeah. To see what he'll do with them. And I, those three stories are, uh, they are very good. Like, because we've we've discussed all of them. So, and one of them is one of our favorites as well. Uh, So, yeah, I I think he's a, a solid director. Yeah, he's very ambitious as well, which we can tell in this story. Yeah. The air date for the story was the 13th of February to the 20th of March, 1965. The first episode of this story was actually watched by 13.5 million people. This is the highest number for any Doctor Who episode in the 1960s. Bill Stratton got the idea for this story when he recalled being bitten by an ant as a child and then he saw the way that insects were fighting. That's kind of where it came from. There was also a belief, perhaps misguided, I'm not entirely sure, that it would be a good merchandising opportunity. Seeing how well the Daleks had done and the merchandising opportunity that was there, they kind of thought that these interesting creatures would be another merchandising opportunity. I have never seen merchandise from it, but maybe they did in the 60s. I think like, like I uh, maybe the Monoptera, not so much the Zarbi, but definitely the Monoptera, I can see them being a, a Halloween costume. Yeah. This was the first Doctor Who story to ever have a trailer. But Ooh. Richard Martin didn't like it because he felt it gave away too much of the plot. I have a feeling Richard Martin and I would get along very well because yeah. I hate trailers that give away too much of the plot. Yeah, like, I can imagine you watching this in 19, what was like 65, and you'd be like, wait, I know what's going to happen. I don't need to watch this. <laughs> there was a special on-screen credit for Rosalind de Winter, which is insect movement. <laughs> Basically, she choreographed how the Monoptera would move and their speech patterns and all that kind of stuff. She has a lot to be responsible for. Jacqueline Hill was not in Escape to Danger as she was on holiday. She's also not billed in the closing credits for this episode and she later complained to the production team about this, but it wasn't changed. From what we've talked about previously, I think when the actors have been on holiday or when they haven't been in an episode for some reason, like when William Hartnell got hurt... I think they've always been in the credits, but I wonder if that's because their character appears in some way, shape, or form. Well, still though, she's like a main character in it. You would think that they would be like a standing credit for at least the Doctor Ian and Barbara, like. Yeah, apparently not for this episode. And apparently, she fought them on it, and they came back. Like for the international distribution, she wanted it to be included, and they said no. This is the only Doctor Who story not to feature any human or humanoid characters in its supporting cast they're all aliens that don't have any human features on to our cast i'm not going to go through them all because we have a lot of monoptera and optera and stuff like that but i'll go through the high level people first we have Vreston, who's played by rosalind de winter as i mentioned she also did the insect movements for the characters we do see Rosalind again in the story The Chase, and her other TV acting roles include appearances in Homicide, Division 4, and Theatre 625. Ross Starr, who is also a Monoptera, is played by Aaron Gordon. Aaron also returns in The Chase, which is weird. His other TV acting roles include appearances in Around the World in 80 Days, Play for Today, Judge D, and our ever famous. Zed Garris, we're on the scorecard. We are indeed. Arn passed away back in 2004. Next, we have Hilio. He is played by Martin Jarvis, OBE. 
He appears in two other Doctor Who stories, Invasion of the Dinosaurs and Vengeance on Varos. He's also been in some of the big Finnish works as well. He has an extensive list of acting credits. I couldn't possibly list them all, but here are some highlights that I found. He was in TV serials of Nicholas Nickleby, David Copperfield and The Black Tower. He also appeared in Murder, She Wrote and A Touch of Frost. He was in Titanic and he was in the Jackie Chan Adventures, which I just remembered is like the most amazing cartoon ever. Wait, that, that's that's quite a leap to go from like you know, some of that stuff to Jackie Chan Adventures. Well, actually, he's a really prolific, I suppose, voice actor. And he was in a variety of video games, including Mass Effect and loads of others. I... That's it, the list was way too long for me to pick more of them out. But I would strongly advise you look him up because he has done a lot. I think I will because um, like I love the Jackie Chan adventures. I do quite enjoy playing um, Mass Effect and who doesn't love Murder, She Wrote? Indeed. She was the killer. He was a... Wa- <laughs> <laughs> He was awarded his OBE, which is an Order of the British Empire, in the 2000 Queen's New Year's Honours list for his services to drama. Hetra, who's the leader of the Optera, is played by Ian Thompson. Again, another actor we see return in The Chase. I have a funny feeling Richard just brought back all the actors that he liked working with before. His other acting credits include Blake Seven, Emmerdale and The Bill. Lastly, we have the voice of the Animus who is Catherine Fleming. From what I could find, this is her only acting credit. Though, she was a voice teacher and apparently taught Martin Jarvis, and he mentions this in the special features of the DVD. Interesting fact for you. Okay. Peter Purvis auditioned for one of the Monoptera, but Richard Martin turned him down, telling him he was far too talented to play a rubber-suited monster. We will hear more about Peter in later stories. Uh, presuming like a bit part or something like that you never know yeah something small (laughs) (laughs) at this point in the program it is time for us to discuss the characters we'll be going through the doctor the companions and the villains so paddy i'll turn it over to you for your thoughts on the doctor so, first and foremost, I would like to address the fact that the Doctor seems to have a hat to cover all sort of terrain that he goes into. I had this as well. I had this as well. <laughs> so I said, like, you know, yeah, it's like, you know, it's a desolated moon-like surface. So he comes out wearing, like, a white version of his... There's a specific name for that type of hat. I can't think of what it is off the top of my head, but he's got a white version of it. So I know that it's a black and white cereal, but if it ever gets colorized, I demand to see Desert Khaki and Jungle Mesh. See, the question I have on the hat, right? Because this was like one of the first things I wrote down is that he gets style points yeah, for his hat. He always gets style points for his hat now that I think about it. Um, <laughs> my question though is, hmm. was the hat to match the environment or was it to match his coat? Does he have one I, for every outfit? I, I think he's a sort of like he's like a G.I. Joe or at least an action man where he's got one for he's got an outfit. The same outfit, just in different colour swatches for every terrain that he visits. Okay. Cool. So I'm waiting to see the underwater mission, like where it's essentially just Navy. <laughs> but onto, I suppose, like the character as opposed to the stylistics of the whole thing. I really enjoyed him in this story. It's great seeing him rely on quick wit and scientific knowledge, especially in a story 
where the villain is quite possibly the most powerful thing he's ever encountered to date. Yeah. And I'll have more discussion about the animus when we get to our villains discussion. There's some fantastic acting by him across again we, we've said about William Hartnell is that he's a very he can act the entire spectrum like he's like he has his humorous moments like he has his childish giddiness you know when he's like you know like oh you know Chesterton give me your pen and then you know the, just he's on uh, science bros you know are at work again <laughs> science bros ho oh! um, so you get like that childlike wonderment but then you've got his deep concern when you know Barbara's missing and where Vicky is enslaved but there's one fantastic part there where at the end where the animus has him and Vicky wrapped in its tentacles mm. and you just see him struggling so feebly at the mercy of this thing. And I think it's like, it's a great bit of acting because he's trying, he's trying to get across like the power of the animus. He's trying to get across the power of the animus and also trying to keep the strength in his own character. So it, I, I, it's a nice, it's a nice visual moment, I think. Yeah, and now that you mention it, it actually reminds me of a future Doctor high-intensity acting moment, which is when Doc Tom is with Sutek. Yes. This idea of this all-empowering enemy, you know, physically and mentally beating the Doctor. It, it had a sort of similar vibe for me. Oh, and, I, and this is the thing now, as I said, I know that we're going to talk about the Animus in a while, but I love when the Doctor comes up against a villain that it has to be sheer luck that he beat he beats them. Yeah. Because, like, you know, while he's, like, it's always cool seeing his intelligence, you know, his turnaround, his, like, Columbo-esque, aha, I've got one more trick up my sleeve type thing. When it's coming down to just sheer random chance, it's always good to see the Doctor in, the, in those scenarios. And William yeah. Hartnell, like, I think does it perfectly here. Yeah, I agree. Any other extra thoughts on the Doctor by you? Yeah, I had a few. So the first thing that I wanted to raise is the Doctor's ring. Right? Yeah. Or as we're going to call it for today, the MacGuffin. I suppose <laughs> MacGuffin you're meant to seek out. But still, it's this random thing that we didn't know had this purpose. I don't know what the re- correct term would be. We previously saw this ring. Well, we've seen this ring in every single episode. He's always yeah. wearing it. But we previously saw him draw attention to it in Reign of Terror. Where he gave it away for a change of clothes. If this ring is so important, if it can be a power source for at least certain parts of the TARDIS, why was he so willing to previously let it go? I was thinking that as well, but I have to take a look in that. Does he have two rings that look very similar or is it just the one ring? I think it's just the one. It's because it's on his right hand. Yeah, I'm just going to take a look there at a picture of him just to see what we have. Yeah, so yeah, it looks like he's only got like yeah the one ring. So yeah, it's just unusual that he would give it away. Yeah. Now, of course, we know the reason, which hmm. is they wanted to have something that could power the TARDIS and they picked the ring because yeah. he's always wearing it and they didn't plan it back in Reign of Terror. Such is the way of explaining every single thing in Doctor Who that doesn't mix with what we've seen in the past. But... In universe, it seems a bit strange. I do love seeing the Doctor and Ian pairing off again. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really liking the two of them together. We didn't see it that much in the early stories, and we've got to see it a lot more recently, and I'm really enjoying it. 
we find yeah. out in this story if you're someone who you know watches new who or maybe you know a lot of people the only classic stuff they've watched is maybe the tom baker era and later we find out in the story there is no respiratory bypass system here nope clearly the doctor is just a humanoid at this point in time no two hearts no respiratory bypass or anything like that it kind of shows how they hadn't really mapped out all that kind of stuff as of yet. But it's almost like, yeah, because if you think about it, when we get to the tenth planet, like there, there was like they they had such a huge show on their hands, and I suppose they didn't conceive that William Hartnell would get as sick as he did. Mm. So I think when they made the decision to do the first to regenerate the Doctor, I think then the door was kind of open for a lot more stuff that they could apply to it because maybe they didn't feel as uh, restricted oh yeah yeah so it's it is interesting to see the way that the character like the show evolves with its mythology yeah would be interesting for someone who hasn't seen any of hartnell's era before hasn't seen any of the earlier stuff to go back and watch this story because similar to marco polo where the doctor is clearly very fatigued and impacted by the cold that's not something we see in later Doctors. So it's always interesting to go back and see him as just an old man. Yeah. My last notes are, with this story, we really see how far the Doctor has come from the man that we first met in terms of his caring and compassionate nature for his companions. Hmm. We see him giving Vicky chocolate to help her feel better, but also how badly he wants to protect her. Yeah. We see him giving Ian compliments and once again giving him the courtesy of calling him by his name. And this is such a big, you know, it's such a big leap from the man that we saw in An Unearthly Child and it's great to see it. And William Hartnell plays it so well and so genuinely that you can buy into the fact that this is a natural growth in this man over time. Yeah. And it's like, there's... It's going to seem really weird, right? Because obviously, it this is nearly fifty odd years later. But uh, when David Tennant has his you know angry moment over the uh, jumping the timeline, when he has his, he has his angry moment about um, facing his impending generation, he goes, "Oh, I've lived too long." With the whole thing with Hartnell is that yeah, since Susan left, he, I suppose maybe he realizes that you have to hold on to the people that you care about. So maybe that's why like the kind of the the walls are coming down a small bit, and it's more so like Ian rather than you know Chatterton or Chesterfield or Chattanooga Choo Choo. Yeah, he still does that stuff a bit, and we discussed it last week in the Romans. But yeah, um, he doesn't do it as much. Yeah, no, not as much. Only when he's kind of like really kind of irked, as opposed to um, matter of fact, you know. Yeah. So I suppose it's time to move on to our companions. Mm-hmm. How about we talk about Vicky first? Oh, cool! Perfect. So, my notes on Vicky, to be honest, I was a bit disappointed. Um, right. In my opinion, she doesn't really do a whole lot in this story, other than be a hostage and someone that the Doctor has to protect, which shows good development for him, but it doesn't really do mm. a lot for her. Her back and forth with Barbara about the differences between education their times is interesting, but I wanted to see more from her. Like, she could have been like this spider wielding badass yeah but other than using it once or twice we never see it again like i expected it to come out in the finale you know in the final attack on 
the animus and it didn't um i kind of felt that they kind of they short-changed her a bit i think yeah I, I, I can see where you're coming from one thing i did like though because you know me and of course i liked it mm-hmm. um i like how she assumed barbara's bracelet was a present from ian <laughs> yeah I, I just love this whole thing yeah, yeah sure it was nero that gave it to you yeah um it is a bit it's really fun to watch although a little bit jarring to see how playful she is with barbara and like mm. how like when they're talking about education it's like oh did you teach in a nursery school and you know sort of kind of demeaning barbara a little bit because of their differences and where they come from in the timeline and we never would have seen that with susan no so all that stuff is really interesting but that was kind of front-loaded at the beginning of the story and i don't know personally i just don't think she did much yeah i suppose like with with the difference between vicky and susan is as i think i can't remember if we said in the episode or if we said it um in person to each other that there's a huge difference because Susan is she's a time traveller like she's from the same race as her grandfather so she has explored the universe a whole lot more whereas Vicky is she's an earthling she's a Terran so like I get that like there's people in work that are 10 years older than me or sorry younger than me kind of going oh back in your days like hang on a sec now <laughs> I remember a lot of the same stuff that you grew up with you know it's it's not that I'm not that fucking old you know yeah um so yeah like there's a nice little kind of comparison to that there was a couple of things for me for vicky one is that i think she's trying to become like a junior version of the doctor with certain looks that she gives things you know like the raise of the eyebrow Mm. um sort of like a mini me type scenario i suppose the thing that kind of stood out for me the most in this whole story for vicky was her like childlike reactions to stuff so like you know They've taken a Zarbi prisoner that's under their control. I'm going to give it a name and it's going to be my pet and I want to keep it and feed it and give it sugar cubes all day long. That sort of thing. Also, as well, like the most childish or childlike thing that she did was when the TARDIS is taking off, push all the buttons, push everything to see what's going to happen, not give a damn, just bang. Yeah, for someone who's apparently like, you know, had all these advanced classes at the age of 10, don't go yeah. around pressing random buttons. <laughs> I was like, I, I don't understand how it blew up. There was no nuclear material in the truck. <laughs> Although your your comment about how um, you know people who are ten years younger than you are sort of doing the whole back in your day thing, that yeah. just reminds me of, and I've told you this story before, but it's hilarious, mm. buddy. When I was teaching, and mm. we were doing, uh, I used to teach science, and we were doing a chapter on energy, and I was talking about sound energy, and how when you speak that into a, when you speak into a telephone that energy gets changed into electrical energy and i said and it travels down the wire and then goes to the receiver and i had a whole class full of 12 year olds looking at me and they were like what wire because of course they all grew up with mobile phones and cordless phones in their house so i had to explain that you know the base that the cordless phone goes into, the wire in that, that, you know, previously phones had that wire connected to the handset. And one of them went, oh, so like in Mary Poppins. <laughs> Mary Poppins is set in 1910. At the time, I was 24. Yeah. I have never been more insulted in my life. <laughs> so I understand how Barbara feels. Yeah. 
At least they didn't call you 550 years old. That's true. That's true. It ranged from I was 18, apparently, to I mm. was in my 30s. So. so speaking of the wonderful teacher that is Barbara, shall we move on to her as our next protocol? Sure. So once again, Barbara Wright, badass saving the day. Yep. I'll be honest, right? So we've talked previously about how when we used to rank our favorite companions, we kind of lumped Ian and Barbara together. Yeah. And I'm going to say something. Mm -hmm. I feel really bad for the way that I used to do that because it was always Ian and Barbara with Mm. Ian first and Barbara second intentionally. Like I thought Ian was the stronger character. I thought Ian was like the more badass. He was, you know, he was the action man. He did more. And watching these in order, which we didn't do before, or at least I didn't. I know. I, I kind of, I was a bit weird because I watched An Unearthly Child. Then you told me about the Romans. So I watched yeah. the Romans and then I went back to the rest of them and caught up again eventually. Whereas I think you kind of hopscotched around the place. Yeah, I'm very much a, I like this story. I'll watch that story. I'll watch that story. I don't, so I've never watched, you know, the classic series in show order. Yeah. But watch it in show order. I am loving seeing her grow into this total badass who, yes, she gets captured more often than I would like, but she's not this damsel in distress. She will do everything to get herself out and she raises hell doing it. You know, she starts a revolution. She gets everyone together and she's just such an amazing character. And I feel so bad that I always lumped her with Ian when, to be honest, She's so much more of a complex character than he is. I don't know if you should necessarily feel bad because you see this the th- the thing about Ian and Barbara is that they they are they are a pair. Yeah. For for me they are a pair, okay? And the way that I would kind of put it before was that the reason that they would be like in my top 5 in a sense of my top 5 is actually 4 because like you've got number 1 2 3 and then you would have Barbara and Ian as the joint four and five scenario, mm. but like obviously on the re on the rewatch, like as I said, I haven't watched a lot of Doctor Who now, especially the older stuff, like in close to ten years. Like I'm dipping in and out of some of my favorite ones, you know. Mm. Uh, like as I said, like with the rescue and the Romans and the early Aztecs, but seeing it again sequentially, you like you will kind of say that Jesus, like is like do I prefer Barbara to Ian? And while I am like I kind of identify with Ian a lot because you know we both have a lot of the same mannerisms, we can both be very stupid at times. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, your giggle says it all. Barbara is definitely like for the time that she's written in. Barbara's one of the best characters. I won't just say female characters, but one of the best characters I've ever come across in any of the older science fiction that I really enjoy. So. I'm still kind of to- I'm still kind of torn as to where each of them kind of lines up in my top five, but it's a very close run thing. Yeah, and a few things that you know really stuck out for me in this story is one, I'm really proud of her for not screaming her head off when she first sees the Monoptera, mm. because I know I would, because those things are freaky looking. Yeah, she's a military strategist. I'm loving mm-hmm. that. Yep. Sort of harking back to her um, conversation with the Daleks in the Dalek Invasion Earth. Yeah. She was sort of remembering all these historical <laughs> campaigns. 
Well, see, this like that time it was like just like oh come on, bullshit, 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 bullshit. Whereas this now she actually it's a case of no, I'm I'm gonna back it up. And the, the what the amazing thing was is that it was Propilius, the the older Monopoly prisoner, like who had just said, kind of as a, a dig to Helio as well, the the invasion force leader. It's like no, this one knows exactly what we should and shouldn't do. So how about we pay attention to her? And again, so I think, sorry, go on. No, I, I was, I was going to say that, like her, her obviously her profession as a history teacher, coupled with her experiences over the last, however long it's been for Barbara, you know, in yeah, was a galactic standard time frame. Mm-hmm. She has kind of become, was a Barbara Wright warrior princess type thing. Yeah, and what I love as well is. And we've mentioned this when we've talked about the Doctor in the past, but how the Doctor often will defer to Barbara. And we see him mm. do that here again when the Monopter are like, oh, Doctor, why don't you have a look at our plan? And he looks at it he's like, yeah, that should work. Yeah. No changes that he wanted to make, really. He just trusts Barbara and he trusts what she comes up with, which is great. There mm. is a little bit of fun at the end, so I have to ask this question. At the end of the episode... Was she yep. playing with the larvae gun as if it was a puppy? I think she was. I think I think she <laughs> was. There's two things for me that stand out for Barbara in this story, in addition to what we've already just discussed. <clears throat> so the first one is the kind of it's the main one, which is I think it's the I put it down here in my notes as the ultimate Mama Barbara thing to do is to put her own life on the line to resolve someone else's conflict. Yeah. Because, and it, it kind of that stemmed from the secondary point, which is fantastic acting by Jacqueline Hill, when you you're relying on her face to kind of believe the horror of when Desarbi are de-winging her star. That is so effective. Um, Richard Martin said in the sort of documentary that goes along with this episode on the DVD, he said that you know Verity Lambert really wanted them to shy away from. Uh, showing the horror so mm. the monoptera being de-winged the octera you know sacrificing herself by essentially lying in the acid mm. to plug the hole yeah verity was like you can't show that on screen mm. and so he really had to rely on jacqueline hill and william russell's reactions and mm. again i'm sort of upset at myself that it's taken me this long to truly appreciate just how great an actress Jacqueline Hill is because she sells that 110%. And I, I think it's like, it's the testament of a good actor when you, you, in order to get across the horror of what they're viewing, it just has to rely on their face. And the only other kind of thing I can think of that comes to mind is, I just off the, off the top of my head, is Alfie Allen in Game of Thrones. Uh, for like uh, Sansa and Ramsay's wedding night and just like I know that scene got a lot of stick but I don't think there was a whole lot said about Alfie Allen's acting in that scene and he was great in it and Jacqueline Hill was just fantastic here because like you think you know the kids when they're younger it's very cruel you the way they would de-wing like a, a fly or something like that yeah. the Monoptera like they're living creatures and they're like just to kind of see the Zarbi just, just de-wing them as a also as a comic book fan, it just reminds me of when Angel uh, was his wings were cut off, and I was like, "That's a horrible fate for someone that takes to the air that really, that part of their life is soaring in the skies," you know. Mm. Uh, so fantastic jo- job by Jacqueline Hill. 
and I, but my point was that I think because of that fantastic acting with that scene I think she got invested in saving Horostar and the other uh, Monoptera from this cruel existence oh definitely definitely yeah so why don't we look at the other half of our dynamic duo Mr. Chesterton now which dynamic duo the science bros or the <laughs> Um, how about the Human Support League? Human Support League. We've got to come up with like a, another name for them. The ones that want to make you go become a teacher. <laughs> well, <laughs> my personal yeah. one is my Doctor Who OTP, but you know, maybe not everyone agrees with that. <laughs> Doc, my Doctor my doctor OTT? OTP, One True Pairing. Oh, One True Pairing. Oh, okay. Hey, like, I, I think like they've been, a, for me, they've been a couple since kind of day dot. It's just now it's becoming more and more prevalent. Um... So, I think we should address the huge elephant in the room in the first part, is why is Ian wearing his tie as a belt? And why is this public knowledge? Like, the doctor says, give me your tie, and Ian's like, I'm not wearing a tie. And he's like, no, no, no the one around is. your waist. And for, for a second, I thought the doctor maybe just got the word wrong, and that he meant belt, but he just said tie. But no, it's actually a tie. Why is he using a tie to hold up his trousers? But he's wearing two ties. He has his normal tie and then he's got his tie on his belt. Either that or it's just a very dark line down the centre of his shirt. But yeah, it's like, why is you, why are you wearing a tie around your waist, Mr. Chesterton? I thought it was actually re- a really interesting choice for Ian to be the one that would interact with the primitive society. Mm. Um, because, you know, like we had like Barbara, as I said, like as a historian, you know, that's kind of her forte. But Barbara's off being, you know, complete badass um showing sarah connor how it's done she's the proto sarah connor like you're like she's driving shit down in trucks she's leading rebellions um so yeah also proto ellen ripley yes yes definitely just proto everyone yeah. um yeah so yeah no it's like it's interesting thing because it's nice to see him be an actual explorer you know because like we, we we have his action man phase and we were saying before like we don't get to see his science acumen come to the fore a whole lot so now we get to see the other aspect of him which is the explorer and i thought it was really cool and again uh fantastic acting by uh william russell over like that just silent uh prayer and you know contemplation for the optera who sacrifices herself uh namini with the acid yeah yeah just like like from the human support league <laughs> just great acting all around yeah a few things about Ian. So I, I've said before that I wanted to see his science side come out more. Mm-hmm. Ian, did you learn nothing from Marinus, which had acid water? Yeah. Like literally just goes to immediately stick his hand in. I'm like, dude, did you learn nothing from your previous experience? Also, you're a scientist on an alien planet. You never consume any liquid when you don't know what it is. At the bare minimum, yeah. waft it first. Waft it towards your face. See what it smells like. Uh, also, he goes around. So all the adventures they've had, right? Yeah. All the places they've been. He has two mm-hmm. things. One, he has his Cold Hill School tie, which yeah. I doubt he wore when he was teaching because that would be weird. Mm-hmm. So has he been wearing that as a belt since day... When he was teaching, did he wear the tie as a belt? Because that's weird. And two... Yeah. He also goes around with a gold pen in his pocket. If you're going to get mugged, get mugged in style. It It's just some random things about Ian's 
state of dress and what he carries on his person that we see in this episode. It's 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 like wait wait who which one of you is the uh, was it the eccentric alien here Ian or the Doctor? Exactly. Um, one of the things I liked about this story is you you kind of address it there is that we kind of see a flip on the traditional dynamic between Ian and Barbara. Hmm. So we're used to seeing Ian being the action man, and while he does you know turn up at the end of the episode in the room with the animus, and I think seeing him kind of spurs barbara on to you know finally take care Mm -hmm. of the animus he isn't the one who saves the day yeah which i like i like the fact that ian got this chance to be the supportive character to be you know the character who helped liberate this other species on this planet but he wasn't the one to defeat the big bad i like seeing Mm -hmm. him in other capacities i also and i'll put my hand up i also like seeing him climb up things because he has a very nice bum (laughs) (laughs) i wrote that down when i was watching it when he was climbing up the thing i was just like nice arse (laughs) you can't say that of course they all have lovely bottoms oh yeah but like (laughs) no Ian's uh, particularly nice in this episode (laughs) uh for me it's the hair it's just you know light feathered it's very 60s <laughs> um so how about we go on to uh, um our companions of the week yeah so we don't get to know a whole lot about any of these characters possibly because there's so many of them so how about we just go through the monoptera as a whole and speak about some of the key players and then do the same mm. for the optera yep so the monoptera yes when i first watched this story Mm-hmm. years ago I thought they were meant to be bees but in reality they're meant to be butterflies which makes way more sense the bees <laughs> um, no because I thought because they kind of have like the stripy bodies yeah. I thought they were meant to be bees but no they're, they're meant to be butterflies which their wings make more sense mm-hmm. from a butterfly perspective I get the sense that you don't like their movements very much oh oh god it was just it was just so distracting. It was like, I feel like I'm watching like a New York interpretive dance society. <laughs> just like this <laughs> art of the weird waving of the hand movements. And like, I was like, you know, like, <laughs> I was like, you know, now you're frightened. You're energetic. You're sassy. Just move the hands. Like, stop, please. Just for the love of God, stop. I understand what you mean. But I'll be honest. Mm. I kind of liked it. I think if they hadn't done that, it would have just been a bunch of people in what is essentially stage costumes. You know, the cost the costumes were very well thought out and you know, they look amazing mm. but they don't hold up very well fifty years later. Oh, well I, I, I don't mind the costumes and do you know what it actually is, um, that kind of sets me off about them, right? Mm. It's it's the dancing coupled with the way they're with their speech pattern. It's very oh haunting and ah. Oh. Like, okay, like I would be perfectly happy with the hand movements due to their insectile nature if he just talked normally. I'd be perfectly happy with that. Uh, the two together are just really distracting and annoying. Yeah, I think we're just gonna have to disagree on this because I actually found that the hand movements, yeah, which sort of remind me of like a moth repeatedly flying into a light bulb. 
Yeah. The hand movements and the speech pattern, though there's one bit that we'll get to in a second, which I'm sure mm-hmm. we both have noticed, about the speech pattern. It helps sell this creature or this species that, you know, given the fact that the costume looks looks quite dated now, you can see past the costume because they are acting in an alien-like manner. But I have a funny feeling this is something we're just going to have to agree to disagree on. But it's funny because I actually quite like the costumes. I like the costume and the makeup for them. I think I think they look really cool. Oh, I think they look cool. I think just nowadays you would expect that from a stage production and not from a TV production. Mm, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, I think we're going to have to uh, disagree on this one. <laughs> so let's let's move swiftly down some of our Monopter characters. So we'll start with Restrin. I've, I've uh, butchered her name. Vestrin. His name is like well, she's been butchering Ian's name the entire story, so I think it's only turnabout is fair play. So, uh yes, for the entirety of the story she refers to Ian as Haran. Yeah, and you and I discussed this briefly yesterday. Mm-hmm. If she called him Eon, as in like E E Y O N Yeah. That would have been fine. Because they do kind of say Barbara's name in kind of a lilting fashion as yeah. well. But Heron? Like, that doesn't even sound like Ian. But see, the thing is, uh, it's also got the other knock-on effect is that I can't m- do an impression of her because, you know, Heron, Heron. It sounds too much like Sweet Ron, which is something that you yeah, don't no, like me no, saying. Don't, don't yeah, do yeah don't there we go. So, a story for another date. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so I think, like, but about Vestron, also, all hail your new god. <laughs> <laughs> In fairness, though, in fairness to her, mm. she's a good leader. She's very thoughtful and considerate. Mm. She explains things really well. She doesn't look down on the Octera or, you know, try to hoodwink them in any way. I think yeah. she's a really nice person. She just can't pronounce the word Ian. Yeah. Like, no, like, oh, absolutely. She's a great, like, she's the fact that her f- instinct is to save Ian when he's being chased by the Zarbi as opposed to going back to her own people or anything like that like rest like that's the thing about the monoptera is that the characters we're about to discuss with the exception of one i really like their characters i think mm-hmm. they're they're kind of cool so yeah no Reston is a character that i think is a good leader and she's a good solid character cool who's next on your list uh so after Reston, i've got propilius cool i didn't write anything down about him but i know who he uh, is so why don't you say your bit and i'll tell you if i agree <laughs> So for me, he falls into that category of like the long-term prisoner of war who gets reinvigorated with the one final push for freedom. Like his whole thing of, you know, like, how do we get out of here? He just like steps up and goes, leave that to me. And he shows his competency the whole way throughout. So I get the impression if there was a ranking structure in a Monoptron army, he'd be like um, color sergeant or something like that. Like a career, a career, a career man as opposed to an officer. Yeah, I, I completely agree. We've seen characters like him in previous mm-hmm. stories but usually they're a bit more jaded and yeah. i like the fact that he gets his optimism back i think that works really yeah. well for this character no like he, I, I i really really enjoy propilius in this <laughs> then i suppose his antithesis if i can say it i can't really say that word correctly the anti-version of him is helio the leader of the uh spearhead who i just think is a douchebag prince up his own arse yeah like his, he, he can't stand to be upstaged like he really can't yeah like when he tries to take over the larvae and he fucks up and it's uh propilius then that comes in to save him like he just can't admit that he's ever wrong and it's just like that's the type of guy that just you know gets people killed yeah i think you know 
I don't know if it's said in the episode. It's mentioned in the DVD, in the DVD extra features. I think he's meant to be the prince of the Monoptera. Like he's meant to be a leader of some capacity. And I kind of get the sense that he wants to show that he can be the leader. We see characters like him all the time. Oh yeah. Um, I wouldn't necessarily. We, we've sort of had characters previously that we said were kind of like, you know, the academy officer who assumes their mm. due respect because you know, they're a captain or whatever that yeah. the case may be. I don't think he quite falls into that mold. Um because no. I mean he does get stuck in. Yeah. Whereas usually that character wouldn't. They'd be watching from the sidelines dictating. Like he seems like a combination of what was it? So like there's two characters that kinda of come to mind. There's Zap Brannigan from Futurama with his whole, like, we'll overcome them with, like, you know, waves after wave after wave of our own men. Yeah. But uh, there's a really good HBO miniseries called Generation Kill. It's about the the second war in Iraq. And there's a character in it called Captain America, who's just this really gung-ho West, West Point graduate guy who, like, again, just tries to, you know, prove his worth. Like, but again, he's not up his own arse. He just tries to prove his worth. And he ends up fucking things up for the rest of the guys in the squad. So kind of like Hillio, I think. Yeah. And then finally, there is poor old Rostar. Yeah. He, he's so nice. And I feel so bad for him. And like he's really our vision point into the Monoptera, more so than Vrestrin, I think. Because yeah. Rostar does get mutilated. He does. But he also, even though Barbara led the Zarbi to them, and you know if barbara hadn't been there he wouldn't have been captured type thing mm-hmm. he never holds it against her he immediately tries to help her and tries to be her friend and i think he's lovely like i like Hrostar is he gets de-winged so essentially he gets maimed and he still struggles on like you know like oh barbara take your rest there get used to the atmosphere i'll carry on with the work um He's complete fade in her. He's complete like he he wants to succeed. He never gives in, and like unfortunately, he pays the ultimate price. So like yeah, at the end, like it's just like why him type thing, you know? Yeah, I I would love if in Monoctrin culture going forward, hmm. you know, they have a day to remember, you know, the fall of the fall of the animus yeah. and the people that died, and if they name it after him, just yeah. as an example of his people and what they did. Yeah. So on to the Optera. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't write anything specific about the individual characters. If you did, we can go through them. All I wrote down is they're really weird. Mm. They didn't do a lot to help the story, but they did help in the world building, which I thought was mm-hmm. good. Yeah. Like, again, I think I kind of, after a while, I think it was the body movements and the speech patterns again can't combine the two didn't really work for me overall so like the opera like they speak in a very caveman like you know you do this now type thing and because they've been stunted due to living for centuries or generations underground they hop about a lot so i suppose with the nature of the costume it, it just seemed a small bit silly after a while but one thing i thought that was really kind of cool was that say unlike the thals it was really interesting to see the past and the present merge together and see how legends are born. You know, like how, like how, so we said with the Tals, you know, it's like, oh, we're agricultural now, but we used to be warriors, but we kind of stay away from that. And no one really knows how it happens, type thing. Whereas with the Optra and the Monoptra, 
I think it was just really cool that you know we once saw the sunlight we once had wings but all the people that could have remembered it are now gone and you're just left on storytelling and this obviously you know stories become myths and myths become legends so I like that aspect of the world building scenario like you said yeah the one thing I felt really bad about though is at the very end when they're back on the surface and the lead Opterin turns to Brestrin and is like will we be able to fly like you yeah and she has to tell him no yeah but that in fu- you know future generations will but he never will yeah that's just very sad it is sad so shall we move on to the villains yes i think we should do the zarbi and the larvagons first then do the animus the big bad last if that's okay with you that's perfectly fine with me the zarbi i'll admit i initially thought they were a bit silly mm-hmm. um but they did grow on me throughout the story the more i watched the more i realized that that costume that they're wearing yeah it's incredible when you think about it. It is this man-sized ant costume. You've got a guy mm. inside it, his legs sticking out. So the only bit of the actual performer you see is their legs. Mm. Everything else is this, I don't know what it's made of, plastic or something, body. They have little feelers that they can move. I imagine there's like little pulleys inside that or yeah. something. But it they actually... They look quite good. I don't know why I thought they looked so silly when I first watched it, but they actually look quite good and they really grew on me after a while. And I think because they don't speak, mm. they just make that noise, which I'll get to later. <laughs> yeah. You kind of have to appreciate the costume a bit more. Whereas like you know, mm. if you compare them to at least for me, the Monoptera I bought into the Monoptera from the movement, so I didn't really pay much attention to the costume the first time I watched it. Whereas for the Zarbi, I don't have any speech or anything to buy into, so it's only the costume. And I think they do it really well. Yeah, like see, that's the thing about this um, story is that the I think the the costuming as the, once you kind of get past the panto horse type feel of the the Zarbi costumes, mm. like the 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 costume designers, I no matter what anyone says i think they did a great job yeah i would strongly recommend that if anyone listening is going to watch this on the dvd or if you've somehow accessed the dvd or the dvd special features there is a sort of making of type documentary there usually is on these dvds and the way the people speak about the costume creation the amount of effort that they put into it they really loved it Hmm. To be honest, I kind of thought, like, you know, when I watched this story years ago, I thought, like, oh, they're probably super embarrassed. But they're not. They're really proud of what they did. I I think these are some of the best costumes that the show has produced so far. Like, honestly, I do. Yeah, like I said, you know, I'm of the belief that I don't think they stand the test of time. But they were never going to. And, you know, if we were to do these characters today, well, the Zarbi would probably be CG. Completely. The Monoptera would be people, but their costuming would be a bit more elaborate. There may be some CG aspects. There'll be prosthetics and all this kind of thing. So, like, yeah. looking back from the year 2020, they don't really stand the test of time. Um, as in, you wouldn't use that type of costuming today, except maybe in a stage play. Mm. But for what they had, they really made a go for it. Like They really did. They did. The other thing I have about the Zarbi is 
I kind of take a small issue with the fact that the novelization of this story is Doctor Who and the Zarbi. Because mm-hmm. the Zarbi aren't the villain. No, they're not. They are ants following a directive from a queen. They're a bit like the Borg. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Individual Borg are not evil. And not like these ants them. just follow whoever has the sort of queen directive or can make the sound that makes them follow. It's not it's not their doing. Yeah. Sort of a I have the conch type thing. Yeah. Don't we have the larvae guns? <laughs> They're adorable. They're so weird. Are they living <laughs> beings that were made yeah. into weapons? Is that a natural development of their species to create this energy pulse? What is it? So the way I view the Zarbi and the larvae guns is I got a very Starship Troopers feel from them. Yeah. In the sense of the Zarbies are like the... Um, oh, I, I can't remember the, the exact name of like the, the arachnid type creatures. But the Zarbi remind... Or not the, the Zarbi guns remind me of like miniature versions of those big pulsar shooting... You know, those that shoot plasma out of their arse mm. into the sky. And I think that, you know, that's a part of a, their natural evolution. I don't think they're bred to be weapons. I think... I honestly think that's a part of their natural physiology or biology sorry that sounds terrifying oh it is but like like, we're talking about a story where there's giant ants and ants small are like like oh i love watching ant colonies but i would hate for that thing to break open you know (laughs) um so like giant versions of them giant ants in sci-fi or just in general are never not scary Mm. like you're you're there kind of going i for one (laughs) worship welcome our new insectile overlords Like with the the recent reports of like the flying ant swarm coming over like the north of the country, and it was like, yeah, cool. Look, if they want to take over, I'm down. Yeah, they've kind of taken over my parents' living room, to be honest. Oh no. Um, <laughs> we got rid of them, oh, but there were a lot of them in my parents' living room. Yeah, we had. A, we think we used to get them towards the front of the house, so we had to put like uh, raid down at the front and you know block up some of the the ways they could get in. Mm. Uh, industrious but annoying fuckers. Yeah. So we mentioned the fact that they are inherently not evil because the Monoptera state that they're very docile creatures. So how about we move on to the thing that turns them against us? Yeah, I have in my notes, um, the Animus. Is the Animus somehow related to Armus from the Star Trek Next Generation episode Skin of Evil? Are they cousins? Hey, look, there's been some sort of very brief crossover in Who and other franchises. Do you remember in David Tennant's run, there was the Jaffa uh, Sun Glider? Mm. Probably a more peaceful version of the Jaffa Death Glider. So uh, you never know. They could be something of akin to each other. But um, I viewed it more like The Thing from that movie that I love, The Thing. Mm. (laughs) Um, the, The animus for me is genuinely terrifying. Yeah, like, the thing that makes it, like, the thing. Yeah. <laughs> I think is the fact that it's this constantly growing evil, absorbing everything mm. in its path and controlling everything. And it's just, it gets inside your mind and, like, there's a little bit of a sort of... It's always crazy when you have a villain that can control other people. So you never know if you're dealing with the person or if you're dealing with the thing. Yeah. And I just saw something there. You know, the whole way that it's kind of morphing its environment around itself to sustain itself. Mm. Do you know what it kind of reminded me of? Very, very weirdly. 
and very what? randomly tombs from the x-files oh yeah yeah with that weird paper mulch hive it creates for itself yeah Ugh. yeah and also you know very kind of rappy constrictive type killer um like i know honestly the, i think the animus the fact that yeah its whole purpose is to take oh it well it seems that its whole purpose but its desire is to take control sentient life to service it to essentially expand its domain over the entire planet yeah like it it's just it's and like the fact that as i said the doctor only beats it by sheer dumb luck yeah like it's creepy it's a very effective villain like it reminds me of armas from skin of evil Mm -hmm. in the way that it sees people you know they're just tools for in armas's case it's tools for his entertainment whereas in the animus's case it's tools for its growth and for its ability to take over more and more um they do you know ring similar bells for me but i think the animus was really creepy and i like the fact that we don't see it till the end and they kind of i i I kind of liked the whole fact that this weird tentacle glowing thing oh like it looked quite cool also, skin of skin of evil, amazing episode. Yes, one of my one of my earliest memories of Star Trek. But another thing that I I would love to have seen, like if like the Daleks landed on the Vortis, I just see their encounter with like I, you like it's always kind of cool when like a villain comes encounter with another villain, because obviously there's there's no joint um, agenda there. It would just kind of take them over. I'd love to see their reaction to being assaulted by the the Animus. Mm. One thing I think would be interesting is if we think about the Cybermen. Yeah. I wonder how the Cybermen would deal with it. Obviously, we haven't seen the Cybermen yet in this review. But because the Cybermen are a connected cybernetic species, hmm. similar to the Borg, but not the same as the Borg. No. I wonder how, if the Animus took over one of them, how would that work? Particularly because... Jo- I'm. No, I'm going off on weird tangents now. I'm going to be talking yeah. about gold, and that's a story for a future date. But I think, yeah, to your point, I think seeing the animus go up against some of our big hitters for Doctor Who villains, I think would be really interesting. So if any of our listeners are into fan fiction, please write one so Trish will find out exactly what it is that would happen. Yes, please. Thank you. So another very interesting uh, character discussion there, Trish. So how about we go into the overall and give it our scores so you can head away first. Uh, Yes, it was a very interesting discussion. A bit long-winded. Apologies. Mm. Okay, going to give our listeners some background. I have now adjusted my score for this episode twice since I first watched it. And the second edit came literally one minute ago when we finished our discussion and we were... You know, taking a breather between sections. So when I originally watched this episode, I gave it a 2.75. The story was not as bad as I was expecting, but I kind of felt that, you know, while the costuming is good, it was kind of good on a stage play perspective. And I was like, eh, I don't know. Then I watched the DVD special features and I realized that I was being a bit overly critical. You know, we always try to review these episodes for what they are. And I was looking at the costumes from 
you know, a 21st century perspective where they look a little bit like what you'd see in a stage play. And I kind of felt bad for that. So I was like, you know what? I took off or I added on points that I had previously removed for that. And I bumped it up to a three. I was like, you know what? The story is not as bad as I was expecting it to be based off of the costumes. And I thought that the design of them was incredible for the time. I thought it was a very interesting story. But I still had it at a three, which I thought was a a nice, solid Mm -hmm. mid-range score. Then you and I had our discussion in our previous section. And I realised I didn't actually have that much negative to say about this story. So I've upped it again. (laughs) (laughs) And my score is now 3.5. As I said, this story is not as bad as I was expecting I remember the, only the costumes I expected to be a write-off. I think it's a really interesting story with a really interesting villain. Where it loses points, in my opinion, is Vicky not adding very much. Mm. The Optera not really adding very much to the resolution of the story. So the whole storyline with the with Restaurant and Ian going to the Optera, it was really good for world-building. But I don't think it really added much to the plot. Or, or like the only thing that it kind of you can account for adding to the plot is the fact that the Optera managed to dig their way through to the the center of the Animus. Yeah, but then when they got there, it's not like they did anything. Yeah, Do you know, it's not like the Optera. It's not like you know Barbara fell and Ian fell, and hmm. the Optera, you know, were the ones that were able to defeat it. I don't think they actually contributed to the story as a whole. Mm. Um, and that's where it kind of loses points for me I would have liked to have seen them utilised a bit more but other than that I mean if you can get past the costumes which I I understand some people can't but if you can and the character movements that Paddy doesn't like um, if you can get past those it's actually a really good story it's really solid we get some great work from most of our characters it's a really strong outing from the Doctor and Barbara's a badass I mean yeah what more do you want exactly so like yourself i also changed my score twice when i initially scored this um i scored a 2.5 and the reasons why i'll be going into my in my negative components and then after like kind of going through the discussion here again with you uh our discussion yesterday and just kind of talking about stuff i changed it to 3.5 and then just going over it again and having the character discussion i was like right look (laughs) i'll change it again and i changed to 3.75 because my gripes with the the story aren't to do with the story as such so like the story i think is interesting i think i I think it's a really really good story uh i would maybe it could have been a four-parter if they removed the the opera but then again you lose that world building component so i don't know i have to see a four four part version of it to make that decision but where it comes down in the, sc- uh, the scoring for me is in terms of the production. So, I'm not, as I've said, I'm not a huge fan of the body movements of the Monoptera. Like, I love the costumes, just the speech pattern and the body movements. For me, they start to grate after a while. Um, the planet's surface, it's shot in a very weird, dazzling effect. And it's actually quite kind of difficult on the eyes if you have any sort of like photosensitivity. It can be quite 
like you're you're kind of hoping that those scenes are close up on people's faces as opposed to take a look at the um, the actual complete scenery because it's it's just really kind of dazzling. It's almost like uh, someone smeared in Vaseline and shone a shone a torch on it type thing. And I suppose the last kind of thing that bugged me as well because sometimes I can be a bit sensitive to sound is the beeping language of the Zarbi. It was just I would prefer to have heard a clicking like you know like the t- type of thing with ants maybe that might have translated a small bit better but again my score my deductions on my score are completely down to production issues as opposed to the characters and the story both of which i think are excellent in the story yeah you actually reminded me i mentioned that we were going to talk about the sound thing and then i didn't yeah yeah when we were rewatching this patty messaged me <laughs> before i sat down to rewatch it and gave me a piece of advice which was to not watch it with headphones on i am quite like vicky i am quite sensitive to sound particularly high-pitched sounds Mm. like paddy will confirm i act like a dog just attacking my ears to get the sound to go away it's really quite distressing (laughs) sometimes Uh, like you know that noise that they put out in like shopping malls to stop young people from congregating Mm -hmm. it gets inside my brain and I can't handle it. Or my nieces and nephew have this thing where if they have a glass of water and they run their finger around oh. the rim of the glass. Yeah. And they know it irritates the shit out of me. But my brother encourages them to do it anyway. And I actually, it I feel like tearing my hair out. So I completely agree. The sound choices in this story put my teeth on edge. Mm. At several points. Now, will most people feel as strongly about it? Probably not. But if you are sensitive to sound, don't watch this story with headphones. Yep, I'd agree. Sensitive to sound or sensitivity is a bit of light. Um, but it, it, in terms of the story itself, like the story is is really good. It's a it's an engaging story. Parts of it, yeah, they could have trimmed it down to maybe make it a four parter. But again, yeah. You you kind of want it's when people complain about the length of certain stories. It's like, well, wh- what do you kind of trim? Because some of the stuff, like as we said, the opera, not so much for the resolution, but for the world building, it's pretty cool. And I have a person that kind of likes world building. Yeah, yeah. So, could be a project for someone. You know, uh, edit out some of the chaff, make it four parts, and see how it works. Yeah. So overall, I think we're both agreed. Good story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The few troubling issues not that big a deal no kind of underrated you know maybe you know people see the costumes and they write it off don't do mm. that you know give it give it a chance and you could really really come to enjoy it yep uh, that's actually i suppose you think about it, it's a bit of a, a who trope you know it's like you know like don't, don't let the scenery and the costumes take take it away from it it's uh, it's the story and the characters that you're investing in yeah also last thing yep the flying sequences mm. were really good oh yeah that was done really really well and i thoroughly enjoyed it i'd say if they ever do decide to bring the monoptera back i'd say they're good there's gonna be a lot more hovering yeah yeah they're really cool and so ends our discussion of the web planet join us next week when we will be returning to earth's history once again in the crusade Ooh. we'll see you then guys bye bye